You are listening to Wealthy Muslim Woman podcast, episode number 47. Today's episode is very special. These topics are not only crucial for your financial well-being, but your family, health, and overall general well-being. Marriage is highly encouraged in Islam. It has beautiful aspects to it. However, we know that some relationships can become unhealthy. It is important to set a strong foundation by discussing many of these topics before you get married. But even if you are already married, you can consider postnuptial agreement and other agreements. And in this episode, an amazing attorney, Amina Rashad, who is licensed in New York and New Jersey, shares the law perspectives related to all this. I learned so much from this. I was literally mind blown after this episode. So please reach out to Amna if you have, if you live in New York, New Jersey, and you are considering any of these agreements or just meeting with an attorney beforehand, I'll share her website and her Facebook page in the show notes. I hope you learn and enjoy this as much as I did. So thank you so much for doing this. I was honestly looking for female Muslim woman, female attorneys who would be able to talk on these really important topics. And I especially think we have a huge need for family law attorneys who are Muslim, who can understand our needs. So I am so glad that I found you. And uh, I'll let you introduce yourself first. So please tell us what you do, where do you practice, and what is involved. Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on. So when you reached out to me and said you have a blog for like female and finances, I thought that was amazing. So I'm happy to be here. Um, So I am a family and matrimonial attorney. My office is in Uniondale. It's right across from Nassau Coliseum in Long Island. Um, But I do practice in Nassau, Suffolk, all five boroughs, and occasionally in Westchester counties. Family law is basically, it's custody, child support, visitation, paternity, adoption, and the matrimonial just encompasses everything relating to a divorce. Oh, wow. And how did you become to be a family attorney? Where did that journey start? When did you decide you wanted to go to law school? And what made you go to law school? So I actually had a personal experience myself with with arranged marriage. I'd never spoken with him. And that's obviously not, not for my family, but I was very young and naive and I was super religious. And I thought, you know, he's a hafiz of the Quran and like, I don't need to, I don't need to speak with him. It's fine. And I thought that was super most something to do. And it just ended very badly. It was not a healthy situation for me. It basically turned my view on the world upside down because here I was, I was like raised in a very Pakistani house and it was like, you're just going to get married. Like that's what you're going to do. And I was actually a fashion design major um, at the time that I got married because I really, I love fashion, but I didn't, I wasn't very career minded. And I think that situation, first of all, something that's really important for Muslim women is obviously the right to initiate a divorce. And unfortunately, Islamically, I didn't have that right. And so my ex-husband basically refused to give me a divorce and he had some connections within the Muslim community. And I went to so many muftis and I asked to be released from the marriage and I had proof of like all the horrible things that he had done. Um, and nobody would give me a divorce because it would have impacted them financially, unfortunately, or it would have impacted their relationships with his family. 
And so I basically was being held hostage in a marriage that I didn't want to be in. And it just was so unfair. And, and you just feel so out of control of your own life because you can't even get a divorce. Like even if I got a civil divorce, I would have been tied to him in, a, in an Islamic marriage. Ultimately, alhamdulillah, I, I found uh, a mufti in California did, that did give me a khula. So I got my Islamic divorce. But going through that, first of all, I was like, I need to be financially independent. I'm never getting married again, <laughs> ever. Um, I need to be financially independent. And then also, I want to be there for people that are going through the same thing. And I think that's why I gravitated towards family law, because I wanted to be basically what I needed when I was going through it. Like I wanted somebody that would fight for me. And I was like, I want to fight for everyone else. And again, the financial independence was such a, a large piece of it because I think if you have, thankfully I had my family to support me, but very easily I, I, I could have been entirely dependent on them and never been able to leave. And so I just, I never wanted to be in that position again where somebody could be abusive or mistreat me and, and I had no other choice. And you're, you got a job where you're doing the same basically for other women out there. Yeah, that's amazing. But I have a question. Do you need an Islamic divorce if you have, if you're able to get a civil divorce in the U.S.? So generally, yes. I mean, so you need the Islamic divorce just from an Islamic perspective because the judge, the civil court judge, and obviously I'm not an Islamic scholar. Um, this is my understanding based obviously on my experience and having spoken with other Muftis and, and just a general understanding of, of divorce in Islam is that the divorce is given by the husband. A, a judge, like a civil court judge, can't actually give you an Islamic divorce. A civil court judge can give you a civil divorce and you can take that civil divorce and then go to like Mufti, like a Mufti or Sharia board, New York. And my clients now, that's what we do is that they get their civil divorce. And if the husband's not giving them a divorce, they'll take it to Sharia board and Sharia board will actually give them their hula. But you do need an Islamic divorce if you want to move on and get remarried because you're Islamically, you're still married. Wow. I didn't know that. I thought whatever country you're in or whatever, the government laws that you're living in, that those would apply and you wouldn't necessarily need the Islamic divorce as well, that yeah. the civil would just apply. That's really interesting. So that yeah. creates like an extra, extra step, extra steps for Muslim women. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is in New York, because there's such a large Jewish population, mm -hmm. I think the rules in Judaism are very similar to those in Islam in relation to divorce. So there's something in New York called the get law and the get law is exactly what was put in place to address this. And what that means is that if you're filing for a divorce, you have to sign a document that says that you're releasing the other spouse from all barriers to remarriage, including religious barriers, which essentially is making the person give an Islamic divorce. Um, I mean, not an Islamic, I'm sorry, a religious divorce. I just don't know. I don't know if that qualifies Islamically. Obviously, people can discuss the validity of that in terms of an Islamic divorce with a scholar. But it's interesting that New York courts have already addressed that question. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I was not aware of that at all. So that's interesting to know. Good to know. <laughs> and um, would you say that Everybody should meet, meet an attorney, family lawyer, even before they decide on getting married. And uh, we can touch base on what a 
prenuptial agreement is and if that's something that should be considered and talk about all these issues that may arise after marriage, including child custody and everything. 100%. It's so interesting because marriage is so powerful in terms of the financial impact. And I cannot think of a single other thing that we do that has such a huge financial impact on us that we just enter blindly without any planning. And so I I think it's kind of taboo talking about prenups with your fiance, especially in the Muslim community. But no, you have to. I I mean, the divorce rates are, are not that different within the Muslim community as opposed to the population at large. So you know, inshallah, everybody has very happy marriages, but the, there's a chance, of course, even with best intentions. And, and so it just makes, just, you know, lay out the financial obligations and rights. And it honestly saves you a huge headache down the line. Yeah. And that's what I think Nikah is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this detailed contract between the two parties. But yeah. the way it's become these days is, you know, let's just sign here and sign there and they don't even talk to you or ask you what you want. Even Maher is not discussed really with a woman. It's I mean, like- and if you think about it, it's, it's just like so convenient because not having a detailed marriage contract, which would ordinarily protect the wife is like very convenient. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, if you did look and I've seen, honestly, I've seen nikah contracts recently that do look so much like a prenup. So I'm happy. And I have a lot of clients now that are asking me to do prenups. So yes. it's actually shifting in our community where it's not really taboo anymore. And I think people are approaching it in a much more like business-like fashion. Yes. And that, that's what needs to be done. And I, I believe that was the whole point of having the nikah and having this discussion before marriage. It, it is supposed to be like a prenuptial agreement, but... Practical, approach it in a practical way. Right. Right. But then like the state laws vary so much, right? So let's say if you have a prenuptial agreement in New York, you get married in New York, and then you decide to move to a different state. So would that agreement still hold or? Yes. So basically, there are actually states in the United, there are states in the US that don't recognize post uh, prenups or postups. So there are states where it just doesn't exist. But there are provisions within the prenup that you sign. There's a choice of law provision. And so you can say that for purposes of this agreement, New York law shall apply. So all of the laws within Mm -hmm. New York will apply. So if it's a valid agreement that's enforceable in New York, then it would be enforceable wherever you are. So so obviously people don't necessarily live in the same state for their entire lives. So there's an amount of mobility that's possible. Okay, so even if you decide to move to a state that says that does not recognize a prenuptial agreement, but your agreement says that New York law should withheld, they should honor it theoretically. Theoretically, yes. And you have to understand with these agreements, there's always the possibility of somebody asking to set it aside or to not enforce it. And the court has, you know, they can, they cannot honor, they can, but it gives you a guideline. So it gives you kind of, okay, well, this is the mindset. This is what the parties were hoping to, this is what they thought was fair. And so it facilitates settlement, I think, even if the agreement is set aside because you kind of have a starting point and you know that this is what, and the court has a starting point with regard to where, the, where your minds were at the time. Okay. And what, what kind of things can you put into a prenuptial agreement? What kind of agreements or disagreements? Everything. So that is, 
that's the beauty of an agreement. The beauty of an agreement is that the parties that are involved can make it as flexible as they want. They can cover everything. I've seen prenups that say that the, the, the husband can't um, take on the second wife. And if he does, it triggers something else. So for example, it will trigger a higher amount of spousal support for the wife, for the first wife, in the event that he does that. I've seen, I've done postnups that address drug use and ramifications. Somebody has a relapse with drug use. So you really have a lot of, of room to address the situations that apply to you. There's obviously, obviously we address the main issues in a divorce, which would be spousal support, marital property. So whether something is going to be considered marital or separate, how the distribution would what are the amounts of distribution for each each party um, in the event of a divorce or a separation? The only thing that we generally don't address in the prenup is child support and 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 custody, because the children generally don't exist yet. But even in a postnup where you have children, we can obviously put the language in there relating to to custody and visitation and all of that. But the court is not bound by it. So whereas if you have agreed with your spouse that each of your retirement accounts are going to remain your separate property, generally the court's bound by it unless the agreement is set aside for whatever reason. But if you say that mom's going to have custody, the court isn't bound by that. The court will still conduct a best interest analysis. The one thing that it prevents is dad coming and saying, oh no, she's crazy. She used to beat the children and she beat the children for the past five years. And then you look at the agreement and you say, didn't you sign this? three years ago and you were fine with it then and now you're getting divorced and now you're saying she's beating the kids so it's not that it doesn't provide any value again it it provides a frame of mind Mm -hmm. but it's not something that the court is bound by Mm. is the postnuptial agreement just as good as a prenuptial agreement let's say if somebody gets married they don't have a prenuptial agreement would postnuptial agreement help or it's not as the only difference between a prenup and a postnup is the timing so a prenup is obviously signed before you marry, and a postnup is signed after you marry. So it covers the same things. And a lot of the postnups that I do, I make the separate property and, and everything that all of the all of the property divisions and, and whatever we're specifying as separate versus marital property, I do it retroactive to the date of marriage. So that way, even if you haven't signed a postnup, like till seven years into your marriage, whatever property you accumulated during those seven years, you can still protect it by retroactively applying the postnup. Oh, wow. Wow. And child custody. So that's usually situation dependent. There's no way you can predict what the court will say one way or another. So there's the law in general, obviously, the way that the court decides things, it's the best interest of the child analysis. It is completely gender neutral. I have fathers that have gotten full custody and then obviously mothers that have gotten full custody. The considerations that are looked at obviously are who's been the primary caretaker of the children since birth, you know, who's been bathing them, feeding them, taking them to the pediatrician, making the pediatrician's appointments, who's been doing the parent-teacher conferences and doing the homework and preparing the meals. So that's, that's, that's really what encompasses being the primary caretaker. But there's also the understanding that you can be the main breadwinner in the home and not able, you know, you're just not able to be there for every doctor's appointment. Um, and you're not able to do all of those things because marriage, you know, there's, there's roles that you take on regardless of the gender, the genders, or the gender norms, husbands and wives take on various roles. And so it's a balancing act. So it's not that if you weren't there doing those things, you can't have custody, but it's just, those are the, it's really about 
what the child will react best to, what's going to be in the best interest of the child. And one of the other major, major considerations with custody is which parent is going to foster and, and nurture the relationship between the non-custodial parent and the children. So that's where a lot of people, for lack of a better word, they, they shoot themselves in the foot in custody cases because if you're discussing the case in front of the children, if the children have more information about your marriage and about dad cheated on me and dad did this and say that there's been cases where the child was like 12 months old when there was some kind of domestic incident and now the child's seven and the seven-year-old apparently knows what happened when he was 12 months old that makes the dad look bad, then that's an indication to the court that mom's talking. And, and the purpose of, the pur- one of the, the obligations of a custodial parent is to make sure that they foster that relationship. So where there's a parent that's alienating a child from the other parent, that is ground in and of itself. You could have been preparing 12 fresh meals a day for the first 10 years of this child's life. But if you are poisoning that child against the other parent, a lot of judges will just change custody and they'll say the other parent's going to have custody because the value of a child having a relationship with the other parent supersedes any fresh meals and any any fancy cakes that you're baking on their birthday. Wow. That that's good. I guess I guess it's looking at the child's best interest rather than what else is happening. Okay. What else is part of family law? Is there any what else do you do other than the I do child support. Child support. So just to explain briefly the court system in New York, there's family court. Family court deals with orders of support, including spousal support, child support, deals with custody and visitation cases, paternity cases. That's also where um, neglect proceedings. So for example, if, if Child Protective Services files a neglect proceeding, family court is where those are heard. Family court does not dissolve marriages. So divorces don't take place in family court. Divorces mm-hmm. take place in Supreme Court. Part of the divorce process is addressing many of the issues that are addressed in family court. So for example, child support, spousal support, custody, visitation, all of that has to be resolved as part of your divorce process. Um, But you can also resolve those issues in family court without filing for a divorce, which I found has, is, is relevant for our community in particular, because sometimes you're not ready to take that step divorce but say there's a woman that's separated with her husband she needs child support she can't sit around waiting so you can go to family court and you can file for child support without having to actually initiate a divorce process and you can also get your spousal support through that way family court also handles orders of protection so if there's violence between spouses you can go to family court and you can file a family offense petition and get an order of protection so I I basically live, breathe, eat, sleep, <laughs> family court and, and divorces in Supreme. So anything that is heard in family court, I handle. And, and within divorces, obviously, I handle divorces. Does New York state law require a period of separation before you're able to file for divorce? I know some states do. No, so New York used to, uh, New York used to, um, but now in New York, we have something called no-fault divorce. Essentially, no-fault divorce means it's not my fault and it's not your fault. This marriage just is irretrievably broken down for a period of at least six months. So that allows you to file for divorce immediately, um, assuming, of course, that you've been married for six months. I've had cases where I've had to wait to file because they were only married for three months, and I was like, you can't even 
we can't even file for a divorce right now. So as long as you've been married for at least six months, you can file for a no-fault divorce. Okay. 99% of cases are no-fault. So no, there are other grounds in New York. There's adultery, abandonment, cruel and inhumane treatment. We really don't, we don't use those grounds anymore because it's, it's something that you would have to litigate. And why, why waste money on litigating whether there's adultery or, or cruel and inhumane treatment? You can just do no-fault. No Okay. And uh, we touched a little bit on uh, second marriage and prenuptial agreement, but so the U.S. law does not allow second marriage. So civil, you cannot get a second civil marriage, but we know some men get nikah done or something else. So how does the court recognize that? Or if a woman says, you know, my husband did a second marriage, where does that? This is, and this is part of, I think, what I, I tell all of my clients all the time, and I actually was making an Instagram post about this, like right before we got on. And it's basically the idea that the court system don't expect emotional justice from the court system. That's not what the judge is there for. Um, and I, you know, especially with even forget second marriages, a lot of times there's infidelity and people understandably, like they feel betrayed and they just like, want to be made whole somehow and it's not going to happen through your divorce um fault is not really i'm going to tell you the general rule and then i'll i'll, I'll cut in with the sure matters so generally fault like you can be married to a monster it doesn't really necessarily change what you're entitled to as part of a divorce process the place one of the places where it becomes relevant of course if there's a history of domestic violence and i can explain like spousal support and how that generally works. So basically spousal support is based on the duration of your marriage and the relative incomes of each spouse. So statutorily, for example, if you're entitled to four years of spousal support or five years of spousal support, if you have a history of domestic violence, the court can deviate from the statutory amount and give you more spousal support. So they can either increase the amount or increase the time period that you're receiving spousal support. The second way in which it can matter in terms of fault or wrongdoing is something called wasteful dissipation of marital assets. So obviously everything that accumulates during a marriage, whether it's titled in the husband's name or the wife's name, it is marital. Unless you have a prenup that says it's not or a postnup. So generally everything's marital. And generally the starting point is that you're going to split it 50-50. If you have a spouse that, for example, had a second wife, which for purposes of the court is just a mistress, and say, for example, he bought her a house and he's taking her on vacation and buying her expensive gifts and basically running her life, wife with a valid marriage can make a wasteful dissipation claim and say that but for this conduct of his, there would have been more marital assets for us to split up at this time. And so as a result of his wasteful dissipation, here's this million dollar house that we have that ordinarily I would only get $500,000 from, but I think I should be entitled to $850,000 because I can demonstrate that he has spent $350,000 on this other woman. Whether that woman is in his nikah or not, for purposes of the court, doesn't matter. Right, he's just wasting assets, and that applies again to gambling. Somebody's got like a drinking problem. So wasteful dissipation is not just about mistresses; it often winds up about mistresses, but it can be any number of things, like even just being irresponsible with like stocks or things like that. It comes up all the time. Wow, I learned so much. I I thought I had read a little bit on this, but everything is sounding like new information, which is amazing. 
So what would you, what would be your advice to a Muslim female who's either thinking of getting married or is married and you know even even happily married? What would be your recommendations just to consider and keep in mind because anything can happen as we know. So the first thing is obviously having an agreement doesn't mean that your marriage is doomed. It doesn't mean that you're in an unhappy marriage. It doesn't mean that you don't trust your spouse. What it means is that you are putting something in place just for like hopefully you draft this agreement you sign it you throw it in a drawer and then you never look at it again but god forbid you need it for whatever reason it's protecting you and it's the same as everything else you do in life where you protect yourself you're hoping for the best but you protect yourself anyway so you can think of it along those lines the second thing is especially with postnups and in our community like i said culturally i know divorce is stigmatized and it's hard it's it's really really difficult sometimes for girls to get divorced i've used postnups to facilitate reconciliation because i think that i think one of the powers that we have as women is our ability to walk out and if you've walked out and you walk right back in when you've lost that power, if, if it was literally just a revolving door, you've lost a significant amount of power when you walk back in. And so if you walked out because there was problems, address those problems. And your spouse needs to know it wasn't easy. You know, like I screwed up and now we have this agreement and now there's accountability. And so when she came back, it wasn't just because she had nowhere to go and she had no support. She did it for the sake of the marriage, the children, whatever whatever the case is. So postnups can also be used as a tool in reconciliation because it creates accountability and then both spouses not, you know, it's not always the husband's fault. Both spouses know like here are the issues and this is what we've put in. And sometimes we've put in that they're going to marriage counseling. You know, wife is going to do A, B, C, husband's going to do E, F, G. And so there's accountability for everybody involved because now you've got a document. Thank you so much. This was amazing. I think we should have another conversation on this because <laughs> it's a lot to absorb, I think, even for today. <laughs> it's so funny because I just like, I talk so fast because I'm used to being in court. And when you're in court, like you just want to get out everything as fast as you can before the other lawyer jumps in. So, like, I talk really fast and people are like, what are you saying? You're just like, throwing <laughs> Oh, no, I, I'm also a fast speaker. So, and, and that's how I usually communicate. So I get oh. it. <laughs> Thank you so much.